welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we are reconciling human experiences with God and His Word so that we can love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Have you ever had one of those moments where you put a lot of work into something and you thought you did really well with it and then you realized you lost all the work that you had? <laughs> I recorded a uh, about an hour's worth of podcast here and I thought it was really good only to discover that I lost it all so I'm gonna restart here and get going for you guys I am doing something different today this week uh, I've taken a pause from the interviews we've had about four interviews so far and if you haven't gotten a chance to look at them I interviewed uh, two profs of mine some friends of mine at how to read the Bible, how should Christians think about same-sex attraction, uh, interviewed Lucy Kinsinger in her book Turtle Heart, and then most recently um, What is the Mark of the Beast and some eschatology. I'm going to take a, a break from that and look at some questions and comments that have come in concerning race and particularly critical race theory. If you follow along on the written portion of my blog, you will remember or have noticed that last fall I started a series called How Should Christians Process Critical Race Theory? And I had hoped to have it done before the new year, but I, I did not get it done before the new year. And so now I'm coming back to wrapping it up. There's 20, 22 articles in the series. And I didn't get it done before the new year, and then I wanted to... Uh, launch the course finding my place in God's story and kind of looking at how to study the Bible so that became a priority and and then um, now we're focusing I've published I think two articles uh, in the series in February and and hopefully this month in March we will get it wrapped up but there's been some comments that came in and some questions that I wanted to step back and look at more directly but before diving into that however uh, I want to tell you about the next deep dive essay that I'm going to be publishing for Patreon members for $10 a month, uh, members of Unfeigned Christianity get expanded versions of our podcast interviews, as well as two deep dive essays a month. The last one we did was about deconstruction. Is it destructive? And how should we think about deconstruction? And this one is about what's the big deal about the head covering, or particularly uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And so... I uh, This is one of the most requested topics that I've had in the last seven years of blogging, writing at least one, maybe three or four a year. People wondering, obviously most of my audience comes from conservative Anabaptist background and so the practice of women covering their heads, men not covering their heads is is typical. We've, we've seen that as... Uh, important for Christians even today to, to apply in some way, shape, or form. So it's it's common. People have the question. It's kind of weird in our culture today. It's it's not normal. Uh, what's interesting is in the in the day of Paul's culture, it was actually the the most provocative thing that he said in that passage is probably that men should not cover their head because it was normal for women to cover their head. And it was also normal for men to have some kind of covering over their head. So the fact that Paul is saying men should not cover their head is almost uh, exposing a 
a responsibility that men have before God, before Jesus, and, and that's kind of a startling, probably in the cultural context would have been the most startling portion of the passage. But anyways, I have kind of avoided this. It's, first of all, there's there's different things. There's other issues of biblical interpretation that I think we miss that, I, that feel more important to me. Um, as well as it's very easy for us as conservative Anabaptists to be so externally focused and not have the underlying theological foundation for the different practices and doctrines that we have. And I don't really want to play into a focus on externals. Nevertheless, it is the most requested, even recently, uh, just a couple months ago, I had somebody else again bring it up. And, and a few years ago, I actually led a study in my church looking at 1 Corinthians 11. So a lot of the material I have prepared already. And so I'm finally taking a dive into it. And if you remember, you can you can access the whole thing. Basically, uh, for this article, a lot of articles I write, I, I like to be a little more artistic, um, try to agitate the problem through some questions or, or examples or telling a story or something. And then as I pull you in, then we start fleshing out like what what was the text say or, or what is my point in this as, as the author or whatever. For this article, I'm actually going to lay out to begin with, and, and anybody could see this for free actually, probably it'll, it'll be the, the portion that you get before you have to join the membership. I'm just going to lay out my premise of what I believe is the most biblically faithful understanding of 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, at least at this portion. I'm sure I will continue to learn a lot and, and revisit this passage over and over again in, in life. But um, there's a few few components, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll share all of these with you. I, I want to share two of them just to kind of tease you a little bit what this is going to look like. Um, as we approach 1 Corinthians 11 and try to develop a, an interpretation of this passage, I think it's important that we understand that throughout the biblical narrative, God instructs, even commands his people to practice certain traditions or to have certain rituals for the sake of remembering what he has done for them, in them, and through them. And kind of two bookend examples of this is uh, when Israel crosses the Red Sea, God tells Moses to set up stones so that when you pass by and your children wonder, what are those stones for? Then you have the opportunity to tell them and rehearse the story with them. Uh, another example is later on in 1 Corinthians, the second half of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the, the Lord's Supper and the, the, the way this is not only is it a participation in and kind of a posturing of our hearts to participate in the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also serves as a reminder of our place in Christ and what Christ has done for us. So it's, it's a tradition. The, the reason I bring up tradition is because 1 Corinthians begins with Paul praising the Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11 begins with Paul praising them for remembering the traditions, practicing traditions that he had, he had exhorted them or taught them to do. So there's something about traditions that is significant, has needs to have some bearing on our understanding of how we interpret this passage. And 
we, we in the West, we have this slightly disillusioning relationship with traditions. If you're like me, it feels kind of stifling. It's like, ah, tradition, like, you know, we need, we don't do things for tradition, but, but throughout the ancient Near Eastern culture, tradition is normative. And throughout the biblical message, there's all kinds of traditions that God instructs and even commands the people to do for the sake of remembering God and fellowshipping with God. I think of the feasts, the different feasts that God lays out in the law for remembering the the things that he has done for them. Uh, the Passover is a tradition. It's a ritual to keep. Uh, I think of the year of Jubilee. It's you've been delivered out of Egypt and you are no longer slaves. You've been set free. So cancel the debts of people who who still owe you things every 49 years, cancel the debts, set them free because you've been set free. And remember this, keep this, keep this rhythm in your life. So it's a, it's a part of the biblical message, the, the, the biblical story. And these traditions serve the purpose of reminding us of the freedom that we have in Christ. And the second thing is that throughout the biblical narrative, Traditions are not prerequisites for salvation. They serve as reminders of salvation. So God does not say, if you keep a certain tradition, then I'll deliver you out of Egypt. The tradition comes as a result of being delivered out of Egypt, being delivered across the Red Sea. Then, you know, set these stones up, create these, these pillars, these uh, things that jar your your, your presence right now and cause you to reflect back on the work that God is doing, has done, is doing. But even if you think of the year of Jubilee we just talked about, uh, there we have no internal record within the Bible or external outside of the Bible. We have no record that Israel actually kept the year of Jubilee. I said that weird, the year of Jubilee. <laughs> that Israel, we have no record that Israel kept it and was, was faithful to that. Um, and yet God is faithful to Israel, even though they have not kept the year of Jubilee. There's, there's other traditions that they have failed to keep, but they are not, they are still, God is still being faithful to bring about salvation in spite of them not keeping this tradition. So it's not a prerequisite for salvation. Now you wonder, okay, so didn't they go into exile because they didn't follow the commandments? And you're right, that's true. And could it be that they went into exile because they didn't keep the year of Jubilee? I'm trying to think right offhand. I can't think of a passage that actually talks about that. What we do have, though, is that they failed to care for the poor in their land. They took advantage of people who did not have means. Um, they did not They did not remember God. One of the traditions or the rituals was the tithe, taking 10% of of your produce to the temple, and then you have this fellowship meal with God, you and your family. And every three years, you're supposed to take the the immigrant with you and the orphans, the widows. And when they when they failed to do that, when they weren't doing that, they were not taking care of. They were not first of all, were not remembering God as their God, Yahweh as their God, and then they were not taking care of the travelers among them or the orphans and the widows. And those are the kinds of things that we see them being judged for, sent into exile. And so the, the, the purpose of obedience isn't so much for the sake of checking off that I did this feast or this ritual. The purpose of obedience is because the very act that God wants us to obey is 
setting a right, set, helping to set a right things that have gone wrong in society. So what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 11? Well, I don't think that while the head covering may be a tradition, I, I would understand, I'll give you a little teaser here, I would understand my interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 is that men not covering their head and women covering their head in some way helps the men and the women to remember their place and authority in Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't do that, does that mean you're not saved or like you don't have the power of Christ? No, I don't think, I think we're reading something into the text. And if you'd like to hear me explain this further, you may become a member and gain access to the deep dive essay. But that's just a, a, a little teaser of what we're going to be looking at. There's a lot more. It's it's going to be a long essay. So, But I, I hope and trust that it's, it's meaningful and not, not just powerful in giving you ammo for, yes, we need to practice the head covering. Or, no, we don't need to practice the head covering. But more importantly, that we would discover the gospel and what it means for us as men and women who have different roles and and, and we, we have different, um, we are made up, we're the same flesh, but we have different makeups in our, in our psyche and who we are. And yet, and yet God sees us both as equal image bearers who, who um, have our independent authority and independent access to the Father, even though there is a interconnectedness in relationship and even submitting one to another and creating a structure for home life and even uh, perhaps church life. That's a, that's a really large conversation. If you would like to access it, become a member. Let's talk about critical race theory. Someone recently said, made the comment on one of my threads, this horse is so dead. <laughs> and he clearly uh, doesn't like the way that I'm talking about it or even the fact that I keep talking about it. And so why, why, why does Asher keep talking about this? Well, it's, it's quite simple, actually. I would rather not talk about it. Um, I think critical race theory has become a distraction. I believe uh, I was saying that a long time ago, uh, back in 2020. I know I did in some social media conversations. I can't remember if I did in any official articles or anything, uh, made that comment, but uh, we don't need critical race theory to address the issue of racism. At least I don't think so. I'm, I'm not convinced that we need to. There, would, I, I would have some friends who think we do. But I don't think we need critical race theory to help us parse out the issues of racism and to even recognize that this is an issue that Christians should care about. At the same time, the reason, the reason I'm addressing it, the reason I'll, I'll tell you two things, why I'm addressing it and then why I spend so much time addressing it. Like, why is it a 20-some series, article series? First of all, I... I I have been studying race for racism for years. Um, my family moved from northern Minnesota, which was primarily white, white world, 
I grew up as a white Anabaptist kid. Um, I did, I have an aunt who is is black, and my cousins are biracial. But you know, even even then, I we didn't have these conversations. I don't really remember having conversations with them. We were just cousins. Like I didn't even think I, I didn't even think to that maybe their experience or their world was was somewhat different than mine until uh, i'm getting a little ahead of myself here but uh in 2015 2016 somebody asked me to write about racism in the church and that that was kind of like oh yeah i should talk to my talk to my relatives about it see what their thoughts are but yeah i didn't you know in northern minnesota we didn't have much there was a muslim family that owned a hotel and uh they they were I don't actually know what nationality they were or even what ethnicity. Um, never got to know them really, but they were clearly dark. And in the over the football season in the fall, there would be a bunch of guys, black guys from Louisiana, that would come to the the college because it was a inexpensive college and you could get scholarships to play football. And so we would have a bunch of, of black uh, youth, particularly men, that would show up to play to play football. Um, and so, but, but other than that, like all my friends, I played baseball for the high school. There wasn't a single non-white person on the team um, that I can remember. I think, I think there were a decent amount of maybe Native American people in the high school, but none of them played baseball. I didn't interact with them a whole lot. So when we moved to Southern California, moved to Los Angeles, and all of a sudden, uh, most of the places we go, we are a minority. <laughs> it it began, it was just, at the very least, eye-opening. Uh, we went through a missions training program in New York City and began reading books like, uh, uh, I forget the title of it, not sure if I have it on my bookshelf here, but uh, Paul Hebert's book, I think it is, Anthropological Insights for Missionaries or something like that. Um, Went, went to IGO, Institute for Global Opportunities, as a 20-year-old. And you begin talking, not only are we interacting cross-culturally, but begin talking about cross-cultural differences and, and all these things. And, and all of a sudden, I begin seeing uh, ethnocent ethnocentricity and, and just uh, the way that we have strong bias, preference for our culture. And so I had the, the language of culture and, and cultural differences and and all of that. But it wasn't until I was directly asked, would you write about racism in the church? Now, I get asked to write on a number of topics, and a lot of topics I kind of turned down. I just got done talking about how I, I've been kicking the First Corinthians 11 can down the road. But, but this definitely jumped out at me, and, and largely because I had had an experience of how how cultural differences affect like relationships, not just between human beings and society, but in the church. Like it's, it, it affects relationships in the church. And um, so I started thinking about it. And the one of the first things I did was I started talking to friends that I had, uh, whether it was my, my aunt, my cousins, um, different, uh, a handful of, of, friends of color, whether, whether here in Southern California, or I actually forget who all I talked to. I just started talking to, talking to people and, you know, not, not wanting to be obnoxious about it, but just, just explaining that, Hey, I, you know, it's, it's not really something I've 
thought a lot about before, but I, I've seen how uh, maybe there's a bigger issue here. And, and so would you, would you care to share your experience with me? And obviously, um, in 2016, there were, there were enough kind of things, current events to create a natural on-ramp to like, Hey, I remember, uh, Facebook messaging with a friend after the whole, de- uh, I think it was Charlottesville that had happened in the debate of, of, um, actually Charlottesville was 2017, wasn't it? I forget if it was 2017 or 2016. The whole yeah debate of statues tearing down statues and all that, and just wondering what what he thought of it. We had a conversation, and then he uh, shared an article that he had written uh, or co-authored, and so I read it. and And it was I spent a lot of time having conversations with people. I actually didn't read a book. <laughs> it's a little whatever, but I didn't read a book on racial issues until 2019, I think. I think it was the spring of 2019 that I read my first book. I was one, uh, actually it was where, uh, I think, where do we go from here was the first one by Martin Luther King Jr. And then began starting to, to see, you know, learn about eventually, I don't remember what order it was, but learn about Jamar Tisby, Brian Stevenson, um, other, uh, Ali Henney and, you know, Oh, I, I have no clue like what order it was, but the more, the more I read and the more I talked about it, the more people like reference different, different, uh, people to listen to. And, um, and also I should say back when I was first asked, I did a lot of listening to videos on YouTube. I, I remember uh, discovering Vodi Bakum and listening to some of his conversations about it, some of his sermons uh, actually, one of the most powerful sermons of Ephesians 2 that I've ever heard was by Vodi Bakum. And um, I also discovered Candace Owens. And I, I thought, wow, like she's really quick-witted. She's smart. She's she's good with answers. And it, it seemed to make sense. I remember seeing the, Larry, the, the infamous Larry Elder video where he debunks uh, on Dave Rubin's podcast. He just debunks the whole data about um police brutality and everything and just kind of makes dave rubin look a little stupid or foolish and that that actually ignited dave rubin's own like reevaluation of why is he a democrat and you know the rest is history i guess dave rubin is pretty pretty staunch trump reporter now but uh trump supporter but like th- that was my beginnings <laughs> as i'm like looking at things outside of the conversations with friends and people that I'm having as I'm looking at things on YouTube, it was those things that I was kind of gravitating towards and kind of whatever. Um, but then, but then I noticed that like a lot of the people I was talking with wouldn't say like they, they said things that were quite different from the people I was watching. And was, so why? Like, hmm, what's the difference? And, and you know, one thing leads to another is you begin to look, all of a sudden you realize, oh, you know, like Larry Elder and Candace Owens are very good at debunking uh, the, the the famous leftist points about police brutality. But then you, you also notice, you begin to notice that they, they don't ever really talk about the data or the statistics as a whole. They, they just kind of look at the statistics today or that year and, and they can make people look really stupid um, 
because the statistics aren't so bad right now. But um, there, there's, there, there's worth having conversation about the impact. So like things have changed. There's been a lot of change, right? Uh, the, the police brutality isn't near like it was back in the 60s or the 50s, um, even more recently. And so, yeah, we can look at that. We can emphasize that. But the the one thing that Larry Elder and Candace Owens don't talk about or Vody Bakum is the power of generational impact on people and the way that that just creates defaults, whether whether it's with white people, white police, or in black people. And things escalate so quickly because there's been such a history that yes, it's going to take years and years and years to, to read, learn, to reorient. Um, and so, so I just noticed that there were certain aspects of the conversation they, they weren't ever bringing up. And, um, so that, that led me to like exploring other voices and learning broader perspectives and, and having more conversations on this. And, so, the beginning of 2020, I had decided that this was the year, I believe already in 2016, maybe it was 2017, but 2016, one of those years I began maybe one article a year addressing issues of race. Uh, I think the first thing I, I did was shared, it was an article I published, but it basically just linked to another article that a friend of mine had written just about his own experience. And, and um, I, I kind of thought was just like, you know, this is one of those topics. I'm not black. I don't have this experience. And so I think it, it's good to just try to listen and promote uh, firsthand accounts, you know, of, of what it's like, rather than the last thing we need is more white people saying how to solve racism. Um, I'm not saying that white people don't have anything to add. I think white people are very much a part. Uh, we, we were a part of creating the problem as, as far as our people. And so we are now a part of solving the problem. But I think uh, as, as you look back throughout history, as you read, you realize there's a lot of things where white people were saying, you know, black people were saying, we need this. Martin Luther King Jr. was setting forth like this is what we need well then there's certain civil rights laws that are put in place that white people said well this is what we're going to do this is what this is what you actually need some of them maybe were helpful others were not so helpful and actually maybe perpetuated some of the, the problems and, and so i just think it's it's common sense to just kind of pause and be like hey this this we are not the ones feeling the, the hurt and the prejudice. I think it's worth hearing from the ones who do in order to more accurately pinpoint what the problem is and how to move forward. So that was kind of my posture. But then after a couple of years of that, I realized that it might actually take me as a white person, and especially with the, the platform that I had as a blog, in a blog, writing about it, uh, as an ally, as a, you know, rather than subjecting uh, someone of color who my readers may end up just simply arguing with and, and not really actually listening or respecting that well. 
Um, so better to uh, just receive the flack or whatever myself, I guess. And so in the beginning of 2020, I had outlined a series that I was going to walk through, set, set forth a biblical understanding of justice, why this matters, like why issues of race should matter to Christians according to the Bible. And then look uh, more specifically at some at some issues that uh, we face in our current setting here in America. And I had a couple interviews lined up. I even I believe I uh, published a couple of those interviews, but I, I did not get it. I was planning to do it at the end of April. I didn't get it done the end of April, so I bumped it to May. And in that time, the news of um, the whole Ahmad Arbery case comes out. And then a few weeks later, George Floyd is killed. And I just remember seeing one of my friends just just post on Facebook. He's like, now will you listen? Like, now will you take this seriously? And so I kind of scrapped the whole series. I was like, yes, like now they don't need to hear from me, right? Like here's some, here's very graphic examples of this. And so uh, most of 2020 was spent just like appealing to my audience to listen to some of these other voices and to ponder and, and consider why these things are happening. Why are there riots happening? Um, a lot of people ended up thinking because I was, I was trying to point out that there's problems that are causing these riots, people ended up thinking I was condoning or supporting the riots. I started getting uh, people saying, you're, you're just buying into CRT. You're just buying into critical race theory. And I was like, what's CRT? Like, what's critical race theory? I have no clue what you're talking about. And um, and so that led me to, first of all, explore what critical race theory is. Uh, I spent about 15 to six, 16 months studying it and just diving into it, trying to get a handle on it myself. And then I, I, I also noticed that and then I also was having people send me messages like hey what do you think of of critical race theory and that that was most of 2020 I was being accused of buying into critical race theory it was 2021 where I started getting a lot of people like hey what what do you think of critical race theory even even some friends of ours who who are black one time we were having lunch with them and and they, they looked at me and said what what do you make of critical race theory and I just wish like, wow, like I, I wish so many people who are sitting here like trying to focus on CRT and w w would have been able to sit there and see that and witness that. Like here, like people, people of color and some people will be bothered. Why do you say people of color? Well, I say people of color because I have a lot of friends who are of different color, different ethnicities. I have uh, Mexican friends, Guatemalan friends, El Salvadorian friends. I have friends from uh, Asia. I have friends from who are immigrants from Africa. I have friends who are immigrants from the Caribbean. I have friends who are black who grew up in America. I have na uh, Native American friends. I have, and I'm, I'm speaking like when when I say that when I talk about mention people of color, I'm say I'm talking about something that is generally true that I generally something I hear from these friends. Yeah, they all have unique stories, different perspectives. They don't even all agree with each other all the time. No people group is a monolith. There, uh, there's, there's a lot of diversity and nuance to it all. But but for the most part, um, like my friends of color did not need critical race theory 
to realize uh, there's racism. They were experiencing it. They were experiencing the prejudice in their own life. And now everybody, especially white conservative Christians, are all focused on CRT and they're trying to navigate that. Like they're trying to say, hey, let's look at racism and you know, how can the church, how, how can we be better about this? How can we have conversations about how to deal with racism? And, and they're bumping into people in the church saying, oh, it's just critical race theory. It's like, wait, 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 no. Uh, I don't know what critical race theory is, but I know that there's racism here, right? And so it, it was shutting down the conversation. And um, so that was, that was burdening me, kind of creating a concern. But then I started noticing people, the conversations that people had in evaluating critical race theory and even some with even some sermons that are were being taught over the pulpit, it didn't. I it to me it didn't sound like they had even read authors of critical race theory. Um, it sounded more like maybe they had read Bodie Bauckham, or maybe they had watched a Neil Shenvey video or something, and um, had from there kind of developed a caricature of what critical race theory stands for and agreed with them that this is wrong, this is evil. And so then they developed their message or their conversation about it based on that without ever going to primary source material. And the, the, the primary source material are going to be books like uh, Critical Race Theory, The Cutting Edge. That's it's over 800 pages long. That's most of what I've read on critical race theory has come out of there. It's a, it's just a collection of essays, journal articles from professors and uh, lawyers and, and sociologists who were in the era, post-civil rights era, where there were laws that were developed that were supposed to keep, uh, build some equity, give more opportunity for, for people of color to, to be able to be enrolled at uh, prestigious universities or, or to get jobs or get home loans. Um, why, why were they still being rejected? Why was there still such disparity between uh, the white family and the black family um, as it concerns, as it relates to some of these issues? And so they, they begin theorizing and writing about this and, and it, it evolves like from the first essay or article journal article that was written and analyzed about this to you know for several decades they're, they're writing about this and, and trying to theorize about it and so guys like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Gene Stefanczyk, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw um, and others like th those are all names of people who are con considered relatively um, the architects of CRT and I was seeing that a lot of the discourse in our my circles, conservative, white, Anabaptist circles, lacked any interaction with the actual writings of CRT. And just and, and so it was from that that led me to be like, hey, I think it could be worth taking time to address this head on. Now, there's a reason that I'm spending almost 22 articles to go through this series. If you would like to access the series, uh, just go to ashwhitmer.com. Um, the last one I published at this point is, uh, I forget the title of it, <laughs> but you should see it in the uh, 
so you should see CRT in the, in the title. Just click on it, and within any of the articles, you'll be able to access the whole series. Uh, there's a link in the article, and, and if you go to the very first one, which is Ask Me Anything, How Should We Process Critical Race Theory? You'll see the outline of the whole series. From the very beginning, this is where I've been intending to go. This is been what I've been intending to write on. So if you're following this series and you you have been following the series and yet you're tired of me addressing this issue, well, you knew from the beginning that I was going to be going to these places. Um, so so it's not like I'm just perpetually uh, beating a dead horse, um, but rather each of these articles understand that they are introductions to conversations that are necessary to have for Christians to rightfully process critical race theory. This is a very large discussion. I think uh, Vody Bakum has four core tenets of critical race theory. I am not sure where he gets those four core tenets. Uh, to my knowledge, there are not four core tenets. Yes, there are core tenets. Uh, intersectionality is is an aspect that is explored. But there's many essays looking at the nature and role of intersectionality. Um, storytelling is, is, a, is a piece that's talked about it. But there's many essays that look at what is meant by that and, and how, how to tell accurate stories and so forth. So if you're reading Vodi Bakum and he, he outlines these and maybe gives uh, the outline in a chapter and he like runs over each of these points, well, it's pretty pretty uh, reduced <laughs> view of, of what is what these tenants stand for. Furthermore, there's more tenants like you know why, why stick with four? like there's we could say there's eight uh, themes or, or focuses of critical race theory. And there's probably going to become more as people dive in a little deeper and, and look at various elements that play into it. And just a note on Vodi Bakum, um, my number one concern with him is that he does not represent his he does not re represent the people he disagrees with very well um if at all like he he doesn't really interact with critical race theorists at all um he uses kind of uses some short quotes of them and then uh then he goes on to say what that means but but if you actually go and read the critical race theorists you'll see the quote but then there's no place that would give the indication that's what it means. He's actually facing some allegations of, of false attribution um, because he makes Richard Delgado out to be saying something that he's not, like Richard Delgado doesn't say. And so I, I lose some respect and, and credibility when I see authors doing that, when I see people projecting on uh, value judgments of what you think they're saying. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely not very thorough analysis, kind of sloppy, but it's even unethical in my opinion. I think it is like we, it, why do we have to create something, a caricature? Why not just work on their terms? If there's something really concerning, let's work on their terms and let's, let's look at that. Let's, let's, let's walk through that. But these, these articles in this series are just introductions to the different conversations that I think are necessary if we're going to process critical race theory. I have 22 articles. Maybe there's maybe there's really only 16 conversations. Maybe there's 34 conversations. Like this is just from from the from the process that I have done 
um, I think these are, are important components. And some of them are challenges to us. Uh, like, first of all, I, th I think we should begin with establishing a biblical theology of justice. Like if a lot of people want to begin their critique of CRT with the origins of CRT, but that's the, that's the, that's not the right place. The right place is to establish what is a biblical theology of justice. Uh, if we're going to say that CRT is an unbiblical worldview or some Christian heresy that should be rejected outright, then we better have a robust understanding of what is a biblical theology of justice or what is a biblical theology of power dynamics in relationships or in society so that so that we can rightfully say like, hey, look, this is very contrary to the, the biblical narrative. Um, but I haven't seen anybody really do that. And so in, in, in this series, I begin by developing a biblical theology of creation, sin, and justice. That's an introduction. I think the article is over 4,000 words, maybe 5,000. But um, those are in-depth topics that could be uh, books on their own, our books. People have written books on them. But that's the place to start. That's where we need to start. If you're sitting down, if you're uh, if you're a pastor and you're sitting down to prepare a sermon, if you're in a conversation with someone, if you're a parent trying to talk with someone, you've got to start by developing what is a biblical theology on justice? What is a biblical theology of oppression? How do we understand uh, dynamics of abuse? How does the Bible discuss it? And if, if you think that the Bible doesn't, then I would just gently suggest... Uh, you need need to read more of your Bible because there's a lot of that. Yeah, the, the Torah is full of of setting forth a vision for how to make things right. It's not um, when you look at when you look at what happens if you uh, take an ox and the ox dies in and you stolen the ox and the ox dies or even just stolen the ox. The, the the solution to that laid out in scripture is not that you just forgive. So a lot of people want to say that, that justice is forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. Well, yes, justice, that's a key component to justice. The, the fact that Jesus has liberated us from the bondage of sin and the, the, the the path for liberation was through God forgiving us. And um, that included canceling of debts. That included uh, restoring our place with him, even though we were sinful people. And it also included making us right and in, in, through the Holy Spirit, transforming us into people who now function rightly. When you think of Paul in Romans 5, where he talks about um, you're now justified by faith with God. Well, the, the, the very term justified means we are now set aright. We are now rightly relating. Um, I think it's, I, I was going to say it's in German, but I don't know German, so I'm not going to say this. But I, I have a friend who tells a story about a German friend of his who fixed a lawnmower. It wasn't working well, and he fixed the lawnmower, and then they finally got it working, pulled the rope, and the motor started, and the the engine was purring good like a lawnmower should, and he shouted, justified! And that's a very good depiction of justice, what it means to be justified, for justice to be completed, is there was a creation, it was good, something happened that 
injustice happens. There's brokenness. We're dominating over one another. There's, there's um, violating each other, violating each other's dignity as image bearers of God. And then justice is not just the con uh, dealing with the consequences and the immediate punishment that is necessary to create separation, to, to bring about um, healing in, in the process of, of protection for the victim, uh, from the, the perpetrator. Yes, that's a part of justice, but even more so, justice is setting a right so that the victim is whole and healthy and cared for, and the one who perpetrated is also whole, healthy, no longer functioning out of that abuse, out of that oppression. Um, that is justice. That's that's what justice is. And so uh, when, you, when we look at the Torah and, and you steal an ox, you, you don't just like forgive the person, but you 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 don't just return the ox. You're supposed to actually pay extra. Like you do more for the misuse, the time lost. The if the ox was stolen, I mean if the ox died, you you get a new ox. You pay the fee so that this person can can go get a, a good new ox. Um, and that's just one example of many places in scripture where we have this form of, okay, there's been a violation, and yes, there needs to be forgiveness in, the, in, in order to be able to continue relating with each other, but along with forgiveness, there's also needs to be restored, things being made right, and then functioning rightly again. This book by Catherine Claire Larson, As We Forgive, uh, kind of walks through uh, the, the reintegration of the Hutus and Tutsis after the Rwandan genocide. When those who had committed the genocide were released, there were so many of them in the prisons, and the prisons were kind of becoming overrun. They needed to to just have a mass release of these people. Well, what what's going to happen? Like, are we going to have the whole conflict all over again? And so, they, uh, Rwanda went through a very intentional process of of trust, rehabilitation, and um, just kind of processing the forgiveness, and even um, creating. Uh, small groups, uh, places where, where they could talk through the pain. The, the people who were perpetrators would would see the pain and the, the people who were victims would have the opportunity to talk about the pain and, and to even share their feelings about these people like directly at them. But the, but a safe place that was that, that created the, the purpose was to build trust and also to help the perpetrators now function rightly in society so that we don't just continue this tribalism, this tribal fighting. It's a, it's a fascinating read. But, but th this is her whole point, is that um, biblical theology, or biblical justice, is not just putting the lawbreakers behind bars. That's kind of what we think about in America. That's an aspect of it, the punishment for the wrongdoing. But true biblical justice is when the, the lawbreakers are out and functioning rightly in society and they're not breaking the law. If we're going to talk about biblical justice, they're going to abide by the law of Christ, right? The law of God. And the victims are find are, are have places to heal and find wholeness. And a part of that is going to be forgiveness, right? A perpetrator learning how to rightly relate to people so that they're not abusing them anymore doesn't really do anything for the victim, right? The victim still has to go through a process of forgiveness if they're going to be able to rightly relate with the perpetrator again or, or people who resemble the perpetrator.
So justice is, is a complex thing, and, and there's many dynamics to it. And we've got to have a robust theology of justice before we start trying to critique, whether it's critical race theory or whatever random theory we're going to receive 10 to 20 years from now, uh, current events, as we, as we try to grapple with like where, how should Christians think about this? How should Christians navigate this? And so I start there. We start there. We start with an introduction at that. We look at uh, the, the way uh, like the Bible demonstrates how sin manifests itself in humanity by dominating over one another. So power dynamics, that's, that's not unbiblical. Like that's the Bible is processing power dynamics. That's, that's why we see so much um, emphasis on how men should rightly treat wives and you don't have a lot of emphasis on what wives should do because the, the power dynamics of the day was largely patri patriarchal society. And so, um, you know, in the Torah, it talks about the, the husband who takes a wife and then neglects her. That wife should be free to go. And and she's free to to remarry. She's free to find another husband. The husband she's no longer bound to her husband because he has neglected her. There's no passage that references what if a wife neglects the husband. Why is that? Well, the husband holds the power in that relationship, in that dynamic. Um, and so I, I'm just touching on just very little aspects of of these conversations. This this is very common throughout. You, you look at uh, Paul's uh, appeal to Philemon to, to take Onesimus back. And in the book of Philemon, we, we see that Paul wants Onesimus to, to return back to honor, honor Philemon because that's the way, that, that's how justice is going to be served is when you are no longer in conflict with Philemon, but you are able to honor him. You're able to respect him as a brother. But Paul's exhortation to Philemon is that you take Onesimus back and you value him as a brother, no longer as a servant. Um, so, so there's this reversal of power dynamics all throughout the New Testament. Jesus said, if you want to be the leader, you will serve. You will become the least of these. So, so the way of the kingdom is the way of, of very much taking into account power dynamics and understanding the way of the cross as a way of of offloading power and not wielding power for myself, but wielding power for the benefit of others or even just giving power and submitting to other people. Um, but we, we have in the Proverbs talking about speaking up for the oppressed, caring for the oppressed, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Um, so so the, there's all kinds of aspects of social dynamics that are very connected with biblical justice, very connected to the gospel. And so if, if we're going to throw at each other that CRT is unbiblical, we need to know, have a robust explanation of what is biblical analysis of power dynamics, what is biblical theology of justice, of oppression, and where specifically is CRT going wrong? And, and one of my biggest concerns would be most people who say CRT is unbiblical either project, they'll, they'll take a quote from a CRT author and then say this is what it means, but that's not inherently derived from the writing. 
or they won't even like they'll just say um you know i, I feel like they're ma making a ma guilting people into into uh whatever usually they don't really say it. it's just something about they're they're creating guilt or causing guilt and um and even that, it's like, well, okay, so what specifically is unbiblical about that? Because if there's something sinful happening, we should feel guilty about that. Um, some, so, so one of the best comments, best concerns that I have seen as for the error or the flaw of critical race theory is some of the examples that we have of people who are trying to to do diversity training or look at history and end up creating uh making white youth or white kids feel like they are oppressors simply because they are a white person if i'm hearing people correctly i think that's that's one of the perhaps the biggest concern that people have with critical race theory is that somehow it teaches that if you are born white, you are automatically racist and you are an oppressor just because you're white. My response to that is that if that is what is being taught, that is wrong. You're right. That's not biblical. That is unbiblical. If there is anybody teaching that just because you're white, that somehow you're automatically an oppressor, that automatically you're evil. That's wrong. But my question is, where is that being taught? That's not in the writings of Derek Bell, Richard Delgado. I haven't seen it. I, I've not read all their stuff. They've, they've written a lot. And, and I've really, quite frankly, probably just... Um, scratch the surface but i would like to see because I, I a lot of people who are perpetuating this notion that somehow their their uh critical race theory is inherently evil it's a, it's a uh, unbiblical worldview it's a christian heresy you don't have anything to do with it as i talk with these people i realize they themselves have not really read much of critical race theory so i'm quite certain i've read more than them so i'm trying to figure out where they're getting it um they'll share articles like Vodibakum or or people who kind of share Vody Bakum's perspective or perpetuate some of his ideas. And and my concern is that Vody is not accurately representing critical race theory. Like he's he's being very sweeping in his remarks. He he even goes so far as to to, to name fellow Christians, Tim Keller, David Platt, Johnny O from Atlanta. I, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but he's a pastor in Atlanta. Um, Tabiti Anywabeli, Jamar Tisby. He names he names some of these people and says they have embraced critical race theory, but then he never interacts with the things that they say. Um, he does. There there is one interview with Jamar Tisby. I think it is, or maybe John Johnny O. He left the SBC. His church left the SBC. I think he shares like some quotes from the podcast episode. And, and it, it sounds kind of bad, I guess, a little bit from what he shares. But I, I read that. I was, I was actually listening to it on the audio version. And I was on a jog. I was like, I listened to that interview when it went live. That was summer of 2020. So a year and a half ago or whatever. And I listened to that interview. It was like, 
Whoa, Bodie, the, the way you just made it sound like that is not how that interview went. It was not a very accurate depiction of that interview. And so um, the, the question that I wish people would be asking is why, why does Jamar Tisby say what he does? Why does Tim Keller say what he does? Why does Asher Whitmer, <laughs> I'm not putting, I don't mean to put myself on that level, but I, I've had just recently, I had somebody say this, I can tell who you listen to what new, where you get your news because you perpetuate leftist talking points. He didn't ask. He didn't, he didn't, he never asked like, Hey, what news do you get to? He, he never asked for, Hey, why do you say this? Why do you talk about it in this way? Um, but he just made that statement, that projection that he somehow can tell me, but he doesn't, he doesn't know because I don't listen to MSNBC. I don't listen to CNN that, um, if, if I'm researching something and I'm wanting to figure out, okay, so what are, the liberals saying about this? What are the right wingers saying about this? I'll, I'll go to those news networks to get my, to get a pulse on what things are saying. But my default place for news is the dispatch podcast. And that's a conservative network. Like that's, that's Republicans. And, and, and that whole point of leftist talking points, um, it's, it's intriguing to me. There's, there's three things that people in the last six months, people have commented on, like you just, you perpetuate these leftist talking points without evaluating uh, their truthfulness or whatever. And then I'll be, I'll be like, what, what leftist talking points? And it usually comes down to uh, how I talk about politics and particularly that I'm critical of Trump and how I talk about COVID and then how I talk about racial issues. And it's, it's intriguing to me because I don't get, like I consume far more conservative media and, and the, the media that I listen to for just kind of passive taking like getting up to speed on things is conservative. It's not it's not pro-Trump. And I think I think sometimes it exposes a little bit more about some people that maybe they're in a far right or pro-Trump media when when just because I'm critical of him, they, they assume that I'm speaking a leftist talking point. I had somebody share a um share a something from robert kennedy about the vaccine and, and this like you know to them i'm deceived and and i'm just leftist and i'm like wait a second like do you know robert kennedy maybe robert kennedy is right but i have i have family members i have a lot of friends i i know people doctors in anabaptist circles people like Dr. John Waldron, uh, Dr. Hans Burkholder, his, his sister Beth, Bethany Burkholder. I'm not sure if she's a doctor, but uh, maybe nurse practitioner or something. Nolan Byler. Um, man, there's there's I've got two uh, siblings that are RNs. My brother-in-law is a nurse. I like there there's there's so many people that I know who are godly people who stand for truth, who have a drastically different perspective than Robert Kennedy on vaccines even if they're negative or, or concerned about it like they're not the conspiratorial type flavor that robert kennedy is why are we listening like how come you sharing robert kennedy wasn't seen as pushing a a republican talking point or like a right-wing talking point but just the fact that i'm i'm okay with the vaccine or something means that i'm a leftist that doesn't make sense to me. I'm not. I'm not sure that we're even being intellectually honest about that. But what's what's most intriguing to me about it is things like COVID and racial issues are human experiences. 
since when do human experiences become political talking points as if like how would you like to be said oh you're talking about abortion let's say and, and you care about abortion which is a, a burden and passion of, of mine and my wife's as well how, how would we like that to be you know someone to say oh you're just pushing a right-wing talking point no like that's a human experience. That's that's a real event that's happening. Something needs to be done. And the gospel has something to say about it. So my question is, instead of projecting onto people, you're just pushing left-wing talking points without evaluating the truth. Why not? Wouldn't a more natural question be, Asher, why, why do you talk about this? Why do you see this as important? Oh, okay, Asher, you've listened to Larry Elder, Candace Owens, Vody Bauckham. Why, why don't you say things like them? Why do you say things more instead like Jamar Tisby, Brian Stevenson, Latasha Morrison, uh, Ali Henney? Why aren't you afraid? Why don't you think it's threatening? Why, why is CRT not threatening? Instead of projecting on that somehow I'm, I'm just bought into a, a leftist mindset or embrace CRT, like what, why is it, in light of what you've read and the conversations you've had, why is it you're coming out here? Um, because it's not because of the news sources that I listen to. It's not because I'm not evaluating the truthfulness. And I, I have tried to communicate this in some of my private dialogues with, with some people. And it doesn't seem to, to always be received very well. But I, I care about racial issues and I think the church needs to address racism because it is central to the gospel. Ephesians 2 lays out how the Gentiles, Paul says in, in 2, 11 through 22, he's, he's talking about how, and I, I'm going to, in, in next week's podcast, I'm going to walk through Ephesians 2 and 3 a little bit more in depth, but just to touch on it a little bit here. He talks about how the Gentiles were once aliens, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. There's, so it's not just that they were strangers to the inheritance. It's not just that they were strangers to the promise. It's not just that they were strangers to God. They were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. And if you read um, Ephesians 1 and into verse 2, you see that Paul is pulling on Ephesians 1 begins talks about blessed you are blessed in the anointed who has who has who's been the blessing to all peoples from before the foundation of the world God had ordained that Jesus the anointed would bless all peoples and that that all peoples would be united in him this is language this is Abrahamic language it, Paul is harking back to the promised blessing and this blessing is not just the fact that we're going to be resurrected when we die, that we're going to be a part of the restored, renewed, cre new creation in New Jerusalem. But there is something right now that people receive as a blessing when they are citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, we, th we, we already looked at some of this, but when you're violated within the commonwealth of Israel, that, that is supposed to be made right. Um, within the commonwealth of Israel, the corners of your fields are supposed to be left for those who are poor. Within the commonwealth of Israel, if, if you're a traveler, you're an immigrant, or you're an orphan or a widow, you're supposed to be brought to the temple with people to have this fellowship meal with, with God. And, and there's, there's all kinds of social dynamics of caring for each other within society that is, that is right. It's rightly ordered 
relation relationships relating with God and with each other. And that's a part of this blessing. Yes, it includes the fact that I'm, I'm now rightly positioned with God, as Paul talks about in the, the beginning part of, well, verse uh, chapter one, as well as chapter two of Ephesians. But, but it, it also includes that there is something socioeconomic that I'm now participating in. I'm receiving a blessing to. Uh, you look at Jesus when he came and he showed up and talked and and he's telling his disciples how to live with each other. Turn the other cheek. Like if somebody takes your coat, give them your cloak also. If you're throwing a, a banquet for somebody, like don't just throw the banquet for people who can throw a banquet for you. Throw a banquet for the, the poor, the orphan, the, the one that can't repay you anything. Like gather the least of these and, and celebrate with them. Like in the kingdom of God is a socioeconomic blessing that is experienced and realized along with the theological reality and reorientation that Gentiles and Jews are now brought together and they're one new humanity. And Paul goes on in verse 15 to talk about how the wall of hostility is torn down. Jesus has put to, guess, put to death this hostility and, and Jew and Gentile are being created in one so that together they are reconciled to God and they become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And that in this unity of a diverse body who are mutually experiencing the blessing and inheritance of God, that is testifying to the authorities in the heavenly places of the wisdom of of God. So now if you know anything about Ephesians, Ephesians is an extremely diverse church, the church of Ephesus. Not only, it, it was the largest city in Asia Minor at the time. It was a trade port. It was kind of the melting pot of society. Very wicked, uh, horrible things were going on. Lots of sexual immorality, idolatry, black magic. But it was this place of intense cultural diversity. And, and we see in the book of Ephesians that there are Jew versus Gentile ethnic conflict going on. But there's also, it seems, uh, ethnic conflict going on simply between Gentile ethnicities as well. And it would make sense. There, there were many people. There, were, there would have been people from the east traveling in to, to the, the port of Ephesus. There would have been people from the west who came in. Uh, uh, Probably people even from Africa coming up into, into the, the, the Asia Minor through the Mediterranean. So there's many, many cultures melting together, cultures melting together. And if, if we're going to talk, if the moment that I talk about racial issues or cultural issues and the, the importance of, of living in unity amid diversity, which is what Ephesians is all about, if I'm going to get pegged as being embracing CRT, then we need to rightfully evaluate, okay? So if you say the onus is on you, if you say that CRT is a heresy and something to be rejected, and the moment I talk about power dynamics and I use things like white privilege or whiteness to discuss these power dynamics, the onus is on you if you want to say, oh, Asher, don't listen to him. He's bought into critical race theory. The onus is on you for two things. Either you need to show how this is unbiblical, or you need to create new language that can be commonly absorbed by society so we can talk about these issues in a shared space and know what each other means by this. But you don't get to just say, ah, you've embraced CRT, reject you. 
or, or reject CRT as a whole. How? How is CRT unbiblical? How is CRT a heresy? It, just to wrap this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time next week looking at Ephesians 2 and 3. But to wrap this up today, let's look at some of the concern about uh, the way it creates guilt, the way it makes people feel just because you're white, you're you're uh, an oppressor. There are people out there who want to say, um, well, like there was one conversation that I was having with someone who said, okay, I think I think we're talking about something different. Like you, you're talking about the writings of CRT, but what about the Loudoun County situation? Like, I don't think this should be happening in school. And this is what the most people can think of as CRT. I would, if, if I can say this gently, it's what most white people think of as CRT. Um, CRT has become a catch-all phrase for all these different things. Anybody talking about racism today is CRT. Talking about the racial or, or the racial origins of the founding of America, that's CRT. Well, sure, I think we have CRT to thank for for wanting to bring up uh, the Oklahoma City bomb or massacre that happened like that's not taught in very many uh curriculums and and that needs to be taught crt wants these things taught faithfully so that you know children are aware of the whole history but i think we need to work on its terms okay we need to work on crt's terms we can't just we can't just place like Oh, these these misuses, um, making people feel bad for being white, that's a result of CRT. Correlation does not equal causation. And if it happens, if CRT suggests that there are that there's value in in diversity training, and then in the middle of a diversity training class, something horrible happens, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to do with the thing that said there's value in diversity training. If, if that's the case, then we need to reevaluate church, period. Uh, we, we believe that the church is the body of Christ, but there's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of sexual abuse that has happened at church. There's a lot of abuse that has happened in church buildings. I know stories personally of things that went on in a church building. And so the, the very pro you know, the fact that we were at a church, then then we should, you know, have nothing to do with the Christian faith because it says to have church and to meet together. And when people met together, then there was this abusive thing that happened. So just because it's correlating does not inherently mean ca causing. Um, so let's let's work on CRT's terms. Let's define CRT. It's not it's not a neat definition. It's a whole conversation. It takes there's there's many conversations to have as you process critical race theory. But let's work on their terms. Let's not project meaning, and let's not just throw like something. I'm not sure what camp to put it in, so I'm just going to put it in the CRT camp. No, let's keep that out. Let's say okay, here's this issue that is concerning. And let's just let it at that and talk about that being concerned. Let's, we could evaluate. I'm not trying to shut you down when I say show me where CRT teaches that being white means you're an oppressor. I don't mean to shut you down. I'm genuinely saying I don't see it. I'm, I'm not sure where that is. Generally, what I've read of CRT, a lot of the stuff is fairly self-evident. It's not that dramatic or that radical. I think some of their claims 
lack. They talk about um, some of the disparities that that um, happen between well, in, either income inequality or even um, jobs and and being accepted into universities. And they don't really give a lot of data to back up to show that. And so I like to me, I don't find it. I don't find the writings like super robust interaction. I actually think this book is a really good book uh, by Thomas Sowell if, to, to understand uh, discrimination and disparities a little more in depth. A lot of people want to quote Thomas Sowell because like he he doesn't say the typical black mantra. He says things that sound a little more palatable to white people. Well, I think I just think Thomas Sowell has a, a far more robust data-backed evaluation of disparities and discrimination. So don't use Thomas Sowell to try to say that, oh, CRT is evil. Rather, use Thomas Sowell to evaluate and be like, hey, you know, um, Derek Bell or Richard Delgado, like you could have given more data to prove. Like maybe they're right. Can you show the data? Like where's the data to show that? Because Thomas Sowell has a lot more data in his. But I generally find CRT to be rather undramatic. Like I'm, I'm not even sure what is super threatening about it. It's a lot of it is self-evident. It's not it's it's not even like that crazy. But I think what's happening is CRT in itself is a theory trying to make sense of things that are happening. So there are disparities that are happening, even though there were laws that were put in place to curb this disparity. So even with the laws, there's, you know, even though redlining is technically illegal, it effectively still happens. Why is that? And so they're, they're trying to grapple with that. CRT is not, not that I've read at least, trying to set forth a path of making these things right or making, bringing about justice. Um, it's just a tool to evaluate. Uh, it's a critique, actually, of, of kind of the modern liberalism, the, 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 the way, you know, you look at even someone like Lyndon B. Johnson. Like, he was a Democrat, and he's, he's supposedly put in place things that were supposed to be helpful for the black family. But many years later, there's still there's still such disparity. Why is that? CRT is pretty ruthless with the American system and the American society. So I think we need to we need to be challenged that do we have too great of a love for America? Are we are we willing to let our, you know, the the systems, the ideological structures that that we're identifying with and and, and finding safety in are we willing to evaluate them to see if like maybe there's something wrong? Not necessarily all of it wrong, but maybe there's something that needs to change. But th then there's people like Robin DiAngelo or Imbram Kendi who are, they're specifically, they're activists trying to pave a way forward of how to solve some of these problems. And so they're looking at problems that they've learned through critical race theory and then they're writing about how to solve them. But then work with D'Angelo on D'Angelo's terms. Work with Kendi on Kendi's terms. Don't don't use them as the def definition of CRT. That's not fair. Um, that that would be sort of like using you know Thomas Munster to define Anabaptism, right? <laughs> like, uh, um, excuse me, like that that was not nothing about Thomas Munster. Do I? I think it's Thomas Munster. I hope I'm getting his name right. But um, nothing do I really want to be identified with uh, in that. And yet I don't mind being identified as an Anabaptist. Um, and yet that's what Luther would have known, right? So so Luther's kind of view, uh, like this is a troubled people. Like, 
it would make sense. He didn't have social media. He didn't have, you know, the 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 speed of of realizing that there's this group of people that are kind of have common feeling, but they're not organized. They're not structured. And they're developing all throughout Europe here, and they're they call themselves the Anabaptists. And Anabaptists, I know Anabaptists. I know the Munster Rebellion. You know, and so like that's not fair. Like it. Let's let's work. Okay, let's look at Munster. He he was in air, right? Okay, let's look at Robin D'Angelo. Uh, I don't know any person of color that actually uh, trumpets Robin D'Angelo that much. Obviously, they're they're not going to necessarily read a white person about their experience. But I do I do think I personally have not read White Fragility, but I have listened to things that Robin D'Angelo says, and there there are things I have concern about. And maybe maybe I'll do an article addressing some of that. I, I want to read uh, Ibram Kendi's book. I have not read that one as well either. Interestingly, I've I've since like a lot of people put Ibram Kendi up as like the, the, you know, he's really dangerous. And I've been listening to some of his stuff and I'm like, man, I just, I'm not getting where he's so dangerous. Like even his tone seems respectful. It seems sensitive. He's not, he himself says he's not trying to uh, make people feel guilty uh, just because they're white, but rather understanding the terms. Like I think, I think something that happens is people see whiteness being talked about without realizing what is meant by whiteness. And whiteness refers to something more than simply being white. If someone's using that term, we need to figure out what they mean by that term. We can't just project what we assume they mean and say that somehow, well, then you need to use a different term or whatever. Well, okay, sure, maybe. Maybe we should find a different term. What term? The reality is that some of the narrative that a lot of us have grown up with is wrong, is simply prejudicial, and it's uncomfortable to confront how it's prejudicial. Listen, when, when I, I uh, pass the mic podcast is, is one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to it not regularly. I actually don't listen to any podcast super regularly right now, but it's a helpful podcast, but I have to, I listen to it in spurts because it's rough to listen to sometimes. Like, is this, ah, seriously? Like, really? Ah, like, is there, is there not a better way to word it or say it? Uh, Jamar Tisby's books, like he even says in his introductions, you may need to put this book down sometimes and just take a break. And I found that at times, like, it's hard. It's, it's rough to kind of reconsider and think about these and not, not even so much because I come away feeling guilty or just feeling like whatever, but just because the, the narrative that I was told was so different that I'm now like, it, it's work. It's even emotional intensive work to reflect and kind of, kind of deconstruct that and be like, why was I told that? Um, and what parts of what I was told are right and what parts are wrong and so that, like, I don't think we should be afraid of that work. Like, I don't think we should be, we, we don't have to feel guilty. Nobody's, nobody's saying we should feel guilty because we're white. Now, there might be bitter people out there that are saying that, but I'm not finding that in some of these works. Uh, maybe, maybe in D'Angelo's book, I'll see. Well, when I read it, I'll see. Because I, I would get that a little bit in her tenor, in her, attitude in some of the the lectures and stuff that I've watched but there again she's a white person lecturing white people about whiteness when I hear my brothers my you know 
men and women uh, from the black community or, or even some of my Latino friends here in LA, like when I hear them talking about the things that they're feeling, I'm not, I'm not hearing the guilt blaming that some people are saying. Um, yeah, it's hard to hear sometimes. And, and I also like, I'm, I, I can, I can feel inside myself like, no, uh, uh, but th th there's a reason for that or like, Oh, kind of a justification. But the fact that we have the space to quickly justify ourselves and they don't have the space to just be heard kind of indicates the problem. And I think a good exercise for us is to listen and to lean in to like, that's, that's biblical to that, that, that actually lines up with now the notion, if somebody's saying you don't have anything to say because you're white, well, that's not necessarily biblical, but Paul did say we are supposed to consider others above ourselves to consider other, be concerned about other people's interests more than our own interests. And so it's right that we reflect and we think and, and we try to evaluate what about CRT exactly is evil. Um, but more importantly, that, that we evaluate like what the experience is of people. Why is it that um, there's a lot of white leaders in conservative Anabaptist circles who have been abusive? And more and more, you know, in, in recent years, we're starting to get more of that that come to life. I know of two situations uh, across the Anabaptist world where a, a person of color was in leader in a leadership role and he was abusive and it it made headlines like it, it it made news okay maybe it's rightfully so but there's a lot there's a lot of white leaders who are abusive as well why, why do we give them the benefit of the doubt why are we quicker to give them the benefit of the doubt um, that, that, that shows something wrong. Why, why is it such a struggle? It's not like in our Anabaptist circles, there's very few, I don't know of any, like right offhand at the moment, black leaders, the church pastor. Or, I, I, I have a couple friends who are leaders in the sense of like, they are speakers. They, they have, um, uh, I, you know, one one of our pastors here, he's he's on the elders team right now. He's not considered a a lead pastor, but um, he's he's from Mexico, you know. But there's there's, it's not like I know of several situations where people have tried to lead. Why do we have a hard time following them? You say, well, there's there's a cultural difference. Like there's such a strong cultural, exactly, exactly. And, that, and that's the point. That's what Paul is addressing in Ephesians 2. When, when we're supposed to submit one to another, there's going to be cultural differences that bring up a flare of hostility. But Jesus Christ put that to death. And so we should not be divided anymore by our culture. Um, there should be a, a, a unity of a diverse community. And I don't think the goal should be to have a multi-ethnic church. There's plenty of multi-ethnic churches that still have a lot of racism in them that, that are kind of tokenizing people or whatever. The goal should be having a, a right and proper healthy attitude that these are brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm supposed to submit to. Like, I might not always get like why they 
prefer or, or why they even see a certain issue as, as so important. But I should try to understand them. I should put their interests above my own. I should make sure that, that they're doing well, not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually, um, socially. I should follow them if they are my leader. I should be willing to, to give honor to whom honor is due. So yeah, all that to say, the wrap up, if indeed critical race theory is teaching that we are evil or bad because we're white, that would not be biblical. I don't know. Like I, I would like a specific example of where that is taught. And then kind of dovetailing on that is some of the criticisms about people like Robin D'Angelo or Ibram Kendi. I would say, well, let's find, let's, let's talk about their books specifically, or there's other books that have been discussed that are being used in, in schools and so forth. Well, we should read those books and what is discussed in them and, and what is wrong with them. But let's not, let's not say CR, CRT, like CRT is a large theory and there's many different writings taking on within that theory. So let's, let's address like this particular book. So there's Christianity, which is a large faith, and there's many different writings that go on within Christianity. I'm not at all trying to compare <laughs> CRT. Like Vodibakum says, CRT is a false religion. It doesn't even frame itself as a, as a religion. Are some people looking to CRT as like a biblical text for authority? That might be true. And, but then that's, that's a wrong use of of how to handle CRT. But there's nothing inherent within CRT that demands people use it that way. It's, but if you think of of the the umbrella of Christianity and then all the different writings that are problematic, that are done in the name of Christianity, well, I don't. None of us would would say that defines Christianity. But you know, obviously, we kind of take a note of that author and that title, and and we're concerned about that. Well, I think we should treat. Some of these works that are being done currently, that are being fleshed out, trying to pave a way to resolve, to, to solve these issues, we should treat them like that as well. Again, if there's a, a direct line back to the kind of the architecture of CRT, sure, let's let's talk about it. But but there, then there's the other thing that um, to evaluate, and that is the conversation of origins. People want to go right away and discussing the origins of CRT as you know, cultural Marxism. And I already discussed how we first need to establish biblical, a biblical theology of justice. But secondly, I think we need to look at the origins also of criticism towards CRT, but even more, the origins of critiquing racial justice activists as being cultural Marxist. People called Martin Luther King Jr. a, a communist. And that that was the whole thing. The, the FBI had a sting out. They were they bugged his apartments and everything, trying to to prove or build a case against him that he was in collusion with the communists. And and through that, that's how the, part of how they discovered people discovered all the you know some of the immoral things that Dr. King was involved in. But they never were able to to build a case against King being connected with communism. But that is. That is a common, like that's not that's not a new accusation. That that's typical. It's very typical. Anybody who is is wanting to address racial injustice gets labeled as a Marxist, a cultural Marxist. Well, what is what is the 
the connection? Like, is there anything inherently within CRT that resembles Marxism? And what's dangerous about Marxism? A lot of people uh, who are anti-Marxism haven't even read Karl Marx, haven't even read. There, there's some, again, this notion of, of like rejecting whole things. There's, there's uh, a fairly popular Anabaptist preacher who, who believes that to read Marx is to be poisoned and your mind begins to be darkened and poisoned and you can't tell truth from air. And so you can't even have a conversation with someone like that because he's conflating and projecting a lot of things on. It's like, wait, 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 that's not, Marx doesn't say that. Like, have, have you read Marx? <laughs> and so what happens is we, we associate the tyrants of Stalin, Mao Zedong, and, you know, the North Korean dynasty with Marxism, with communism, rightfully so, they were communistic, they were, they were using the, the concepts of Karl Marx for their own personal agendas. But what can often be forgotten is that the world has had many, many tyrants who used many, many philosophies of government, many philosophies of economics for their own purposes, their own gain. We are witnessing before us today a tyrant on the loose who's using the form of democracy. It's corrupt. It's, it's not a true democracy because he's, he's still rigging the, the voting and everything and you know the, the role of oligarchs and all that. I'm, I'm still kind of confused understanding that. But the technical framework that Russia lives under right now is democracy. Now, obviously, Volodymyr Zelensky is wanting Western democracy. He, he keeps talking about the, the more westernized freedom and, and, and role of democracy. And that's the very thing that, that Putin is not wanting. He does not want Ukraine to go West and become like Westerners. And, but Putin is going to use, Putin is a tyrant. He's going to use whatever system he can to bring about his ends. And he came to uh, power in a reign where communism had just collapsed. So they're developing democracy in Russia, and he takes advantage of that. History has been full of forms of government, everything from the czars and the serfs. That's actually kind of more the, the, the Putin sees himself as a czar, kind of a new reenactment of the czar. But there, there have been many many forms of government that tyrants have used for their gain. So we cannot just correlate, oh, there's correlation, Karl Marx, he's, he's kind of behind communism and communism, you know, is run by all these tyrants and it's inherently evil. Unless we also want to now be, say, and acknowledge, and, and Putin is not the first, but there are many other tyrants who used forms of capitalism, forms of, of democracy to bring about their gain. I mean, Hitler was, was, an example of that. Hitler was not in a communist state. It, it wasn't. So we need to kind of throttle back and say, wait, 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 where, like, what are we supposed to be afraid of? And where kind of this assumed posture that conservative Christian evangelicals are against Marxism, where does that come from? There's a lot of propaganda developed in the mid 1900s when communism was coming to rise and was a, a threat of war against America that in America, businessmen, kind of the oligarchs of America, had developed, uh, came together to create advertisements and even movies that, that depicted communism as something to be feared because they wanted 
the energy of American citizens to 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 be willing to go out and fight. Like, let's go fight against the the communism that is rearing its head in the in the battles. Whether whether you think of the Vietnam War, the the Korean War, or even uh, some of the world wars. Like we want to fight against these communists, and in order to drum up interest in going to fight and going to to battle, then there was propaganda that was developed, advertisements, movies, to to condition us as a society to fear communism. In a similar way, we've seen in recent years, there's a conditioning to view uh, Muslim countries as the thing to be feared, this inherent threat. It's interesting. I wonder what um, you know if if Iraq could have the the peace to create movies. Like, what would their movies be about? Like, would they be would would they be teaching you know the fear of America, this nation that comes and invades them under the supposed guise of weapons of mass destruction? And e even though that there was never any proof of that, we we view that as a as a it was good. It was an act of bravery for our people. It, it saved us. It did allow us freedom, perhaps. We now know, you know, now we know that there wasn't anything to be afraid of. Sadly, uh, and this is as a nonviolent Anabaptist, I don't know what to think about this, but w what became the ISIS cell could have been destroyed. But... Uh, Colin Powell and the Bush administration did not want to begin that war because they wanted an excuse to go into Iraq. Um, now that's that's a whole uh, history trail that we could we could dive into in another conversation. But uh, my my whole point is that tyranny has taken many different forms, and you know one of the things that we saw in January sixth of twenty twenty one was that. We're not that far away from tyranny being on our doorstep here in America. Now, thankfully, there are still men of character and morality who are in positions of power, who have the, the backbone to stand and say, no, Mr. President, I'm not going to certify the votes in, in a certain way. Even if Pence thought that the, the election was rigged or you know, even, even if he wanted Trump to actually win, like he still, he still stood for morality and and character and, and we're grateful for that um, but we need as christians we should have an understanding that all systems of government fail the nations rise and the nations are brought low and in all human forms of government economics like there's going to be heirs to them capitalism creates a wealth gap but capitalism is needed to develop wealth in a society. Karl Marx even taught that. He taught that capitalism, uh, sorry, socialism needed capitalism to get the the econ economy to a level that is good enough to sustain socialism. <clears throat> and we see perhaps uh, the Scandinavian countries actually if implementing in a more nuanced way some of, some of Marx's ideas. Marx's ideas about socialism in a way that that can be run in a democracy and that can be a little healthier for for the people they're turning a surplus as, as a as a, a nation and you know a lot of people argue debate oh they're not actually socialists well no they're not communists but here's the question one of the things that is inherent to the idea of socialism is is sharing 
a society, that's why it's called socialism, that the society is responsible for creating equal opportunity, for creating equity, for creating equal opportunity for wealth, uh, equal opportunity for education, and so that the society shares that responsibility. And that's, that's why, that, that's where the definition of socialism just just so we're clear, I'm not trying to promote socialism here. I'm trying to just communicate like what socialism is. Karl Marx taught that in order to bring about true reformation and revolutions, you need to overthrow those in power. You need to violently take those in power. So I, I vehemently disagree with Karl Marx's path forward. But I think I think he was tapping into legitimate things that could be helpful. It doesn't work. The, the individualism of capitalism doesn't work for people who don't have capital. It works very well for people who have capital, but not everybody has capital. Not everybody has the same opportunity for capital. And so, um, so, so we need to understand that socialism or, or even Marxism is, a, again, a theory, something that is studied in academia. And so when you read over the list of authors of people who wrote CRT, yeah, you're going to read people who you're going to see that they, oh, they were trained, like they had this Marxist training in their, in their education. Uh, there are even, I, I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I think any econ economist probably went through a class on Marxism that that's, that's kind of just part of the field. And so just to say that that inherently means you are now founded on Marxism, no, what, what particularly about critical race theory or critical theory in general is Marxist in nature inherently? And then what is problematic about that? Like we need to get specific. Let's work with specifics. If, if there, hear, hear me out. I'm not saying that to shut you down. I'm saying that to ask you to get more specific if, if, if this is your concern um, so that we can talk more specifically about the issues and not just kind of a general fear mongering of, oh, it's, it's those Marxists. Because it's not, it's not necessarily like it, the, the bad things, the concerning things of Marxism are not inherently being brought over. Might they be? Yeah, they might be. It, it, just like if you look at someone like Dave Ramsey, who, who teaches, he uses the Bible to perpetuate his pol uh, capitalistic framework for understanding finances, and he can help people get rich, but there's also certain people that can't really be helped by him. Um, he, he, he shuts down the conversation pretty quickly of, of people who find themselves living in, in urban areas. If, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. His, pretty much his solution, if you're living in an urban area, is just to get out of the urban area or to relocate, get to another place. And I, I, I find that uh, rather lacking. Like if, if, if I tell you, if you're living in a rural area and you're facing some problems and I tell you, well, you need to just get into the urban area, then you won't have those problems anymore. You're going to be like, dude, like you just went over my head like that. You're missing me. Well, that's, that's how it is with people in the urban areas. Like the, the solution, like we need to find solutions that fit the settings and we need to be willing to nuance our dogma or our ideologies in order to actually find helpful solutions. So was critical race theory founded on Marxism? Well, I guess, like, what do we mean by founded on something? Was America founded on Christian principles? What does that mean? Does it mean that there were principles in the Bible that were taken and put in the Constitution of America? 
Yeah, there were. But does that mean that the Constitution of America says the same message that the Bible says? No, it doesn't. Um, so I would say if something's founded on, if we're going to say it's founded on Christian principles, then the, the, the Constitution and the way that it's structured is going to resemble the, the, the motif or the trajectory of the biblical narrative. America's Constitution doesn't. America's uh, of structures do not. And, and the fact that America exists, like the fact that they were living and they had rebelled against their people and then trampled over and had imperialistic uh, nature taking over the land, looting the land and, and taking over the people, like that inherently goes against things that, that the Bible tells Christians to do or not to do. And so like you, you can't break the the very principles of the Bible and then say, oh, but we're going to found something that's founded on the Bible. Like immediately in that moment, it should have brought people to repentance. And these, we have just violated you. This is wrong. But it didn't. And so I don't, I don't think that our founding fathers, the, the founding fathers of America were prayerfully like trying to develop something that, that accurately portrayed the kingdom of God in America. Not at all. But they saw things in the Bible that were helpful for their ends, for their political ends, to develop a, a structure that seemed more fit for the things that they wanted. Um, and so they used the Bible, just like Dave Ramsey uses the Bible. But, you know, he, he, he's right on when he says that the borrower is slave to the lender. So he's very much against debt. So he works hard to help people get out of debt. But there's absolutely no dialogue. You'll never hear on Dave Ramsey's show anything about the, the parable where Jesus like satirically kind of mocks this man whose business is growing and he's doing well and he's building bigger barns and bigger sheds and getting bigger machinery. And Jesus says, you fool. Like the, the very one who says, don't call people fool, is now saying, you fool, your, your soul is going to be asked of you tonight. Should that not also be a part of shaping our understanding of how to steward our finances? Well, if, if you're trying to found your philosophy of finances on the biblical narrative, then it should, it would. But that's not what Dave Ramsey is doing. Dave Ramsey is, has a very pragmatic, it's very practical, a lot of it is common sense, way of building wealth. And he's, he's trying to help you build wealth. And if you have, like, he, he, he tells you to hustle and, and to spread your schedule thin for the sake of getting out of debt and building wealth. Well, that directly contradicts the values of Scripture that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like, that should be your ultimate pursuit. Um, and and you're, you should care for your family. You should not neglect taking care of your family and, as well as the, the commission, the, the call of Christ to make disciples. Now, I'm not saying, I, I think in business you can make disciples and in your work is a, is a part of that, but, but I'm just trying to illustrate that, no, Dave, Ram, Dave Ramsey is not founded on biblical principles. He's using biblical principles to give a perceived authority to his teaching. In the same way, America is not founded on biblical principles they're using biblical principles to give a perceived authority for their form of government, their form of economy. And in the same way, in a similar way, CRT is not founded on Marxism. Marxist ideas might be influencing how they structure, but it's not like it's inherently trying to perpetuate Marxism. The other thing about that conversation is 
like most of the early uh, Sojourner Truth, some of the other, uh, like uh, Derek Bell, I think even, like they were Christians. They they were fellow Christians. And so they were, be, like if you if you want to somehow claim that the, the very group of people who had Thomas Jefferson and, and Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, that somehow they were Christians, John Adams was. We know John, John Adams was a Christian. Um, actually, Jefferson may have been as well. I forget. It's not uncommon for people back then to talk about God. Uh, there, there was no such thing as an atheist or a skeptic back then. Uh, there were, there was theism and then deism. So deism was the trajectory away from God, and that's where most people, like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, they would have been deists. So they had this perception of God, but God's just up there in the skies, and we're supposed to govern, we're supposed to rule and, and reign down here, however we see fit. And it's the trajectory, it's the path toward atheism and skepticism. So, no, I like. They're not inherently trying to follow. Benjamin Franklin was an incredibly immoral man. Like they're not trying to follow the way of the kingdom. So, if if we're gonna discuss the origins of CRT, then let's let's be honest about origin stories. Let's be honest about origin conversations. Um, and and I think we also need to to be pretty frank and honest about how. We're kind of selective on the ideas that we demand to know the origins of. I think that's problematic. I think that shows some bias that ought to be confronted within us. Anyways, this has gotten lengthy. Thank you for listening. I would I would love to hear feedback if you have questions. If there's something you're not entirely understanding. If there's anything that I've said, especially in terms of like show me where in, in critical race theory does does it say this, I welcome you to, to drop and like maybe take a picture of like, hey, page, you know, 624 or whatever, it says this. So go ahead. I, I, I will be honest with you. I'm not like if you if you drop a YouTube link of, of somebody like Neil Shenvey or Vodi Bakum or Answers in Genesis or or anything along that, I'm probably not gonna like I've I've done a lot of that reading and, and listening to those. Yeah, I mean, even in the last couple of weeks, I th- I think on Facebook I I said something about hey, you know, what is what is the reason? What is unbiblical about critical race theory? Give me your your best explanation answer to that. And a lot of people dropped some videos and articles and stuff, and and I looked at them and I'm like I can if it's a video it's like within five minutes I can tell like oh I I know what you're gonna say and I'll zoom ahead and be like oh yeah yeah they're saying it. Uh, the article I skimmed through, it's like, oh yeah, no, these, oh, oh, he's pulling Bacham's four, four tenants or um, whatever. Like a, a lot of it is just kind of common being circulated. And I think something, I, I guess something I would appeal to you is that you also evaluate the origins of the criticism against CRT. And I'll drop a link in this podcast description that that talks about where this staunch criticism of crt comes from kind of the the uh the way that's developed in the church and then it was kind of perpetuated in in the political punditry as well and we're seeing that like we're seeing you know politicians like take a hard stance against crt and you can tell like by their speech they don't even really know much about the conversation but they're trying to galvanize the evangelical vote and right now, that's the thing, like having a strong stance against CRT, that's that's the way to galvanize it. In fact, that actually ranked, uh, I forget it, was it Pew uh, Research? I should see if I should find that. I remember uh, a year ago, I was reading a poll, a survey that talked about like what things did people vote on, vote accordingly, and abortion, I think it was like seven or eight 
on the list. It wasn't that high of the thing. And, and other things like, um, I think, I think um, economy was pretty high, how the economy was, as well as uh, the, the in resistance to the influx of, I forget, I don't think it was worded, like I don't think CRT was specifically, but maybe wokeism or like the concern over wokeism and stuff like that. Folks, these are just new invented ways to silence people, to to sideline things and not actually have a robust conversation about issues that, that truly matter. Yeah, I, th I think we could do better as a church. I think, like I said, we don't need CRT, but don't, when somebody starts talking about, hey, like, you know, I think this is unhealthy for us to dominate the conversation as as white people, you know, and you begin to like specifically name certain issues that are taking place and don't go don't go labeling onto them, oh you're just embracing CRT. Cause that's not gonna help the conversation either. Like no, like I'm I'm talking about something that's happening right now, like right in this meeting, right here. We're seeing it play out. I've been in meetings like that. And I guess um one of my appeals would be if if you don't like if if your church in your community is all white you don't have to feel guilty if your city or if, if whatever demo, demo, um, demography, whatever demographic your church is in, in society, if it's not resembling that, if your church is not resembling that, I think you should ask some deeper questions. I don't think you need to feel guilty inherently, but, but you should ask some deeper questions. Like, what is it about our church that, that makes it impossible? I think those things need to be reevaluated, need to be deconstructed as it were and be like hey what what sort of prejudices are guiding our understanding of theology even so no i don't think you need to feel guilty and just like oh we have an all-white church but i do think uh unless your immediate culture resembles all white you know you should probably ask some questions like what are are we making disciples like are we are we out like have we shared for for as many people that are anti-crt how many people have Talk to their neighbor about the issues of life over the last year and a half, two years. Um, have, you, have you shared the gospel with anybody recently? Are you, are you actively like discipling someone who's not like you, who's not from your background? Um, and if you're not, why not? I get you. Like, it's hard. I get it. But that, that kind of indicates like a lack of love within us if we're, if we're not actually pursuing uh, all the nations whether whether we're going to the nations or whether the nations are here right with us and i'm i'm absolutely not saying that oh i've got a caucasian neighbor on this side and a caucasian neighbor on this side and, oh like a mile out of town i know there's a black guy so i'm going to go try and disciple him like no disciple your neighbors like just my point is i think we have deeper questions to be asking of ourselves if if we if we aren't facing these struggles, if we aren't facing cultural dynamics in our church, I think we have deeper questions to be asking. Like, how much are we actually out making disciples? Like, how much do we love our neighbors? How much how much do we care about the the, the nations, the world, which includes white American Gentiles? How much do we care about them knowing the Messiah and receiving becoming joint heirs to the promise and the blessing? Because it's in that process, we're going to bump into all kinds of messy stuff that we're going to need some kind of language to talk about. And, and we're going to need some kind of tools to help analyze, like, okay, what might be going on? We're, we're going to have to have raw conversations about the history that, that you grew up with. Have, have a Jew that grew up in Germany 
maybe maybe they themselves were in a concentration camp or their parents were in concentration camp and somehow you know live with a german like that's that's like the people of rwanda that's like uh you know the people of the is muslims getting along with with jews palestinian jews it's like americans and native americans people of european descent and native americans and people whether they're from africa directly or, or their ancestors are from africa <sighs> like the more we love others and the more we actually preach the gospel and and share the gospel disciple people the more we're going to bump into these just messy dynamics of church and we've got to have a robust theology of justice a robust theology of the kingdom of god a robust theology of the eschatological vision of the bible and the kingdom of god in order to navigate these messy situations we don't need crt for all of that but the moment we start talking about those things don't, don't go label people just embrace CRT. If somebody's saying, hey, CRT is helping me kind of articulate and find find words, language for, for issues to talk about, like don't just shut them down or you're buying into a heresy. No, interact with it, engage it. Most times if you're if you're saying just to shut something away, you end up creating a curiosity in it and you're not actually learning how to process. It. Anyways, I'm gonna stop there. Next week we're gonna look at Ephesians 2 and 3. I'm gonna share uh, basically just share a sermon with you that I recently shared with our church and so if you, if you want some homework go go ahead and read the book of Ephesians it takes about it takes me I'm a slow reader it takes me 26 minutes to read in one sitting so you can parse that out however you want four sets of six plus two <laughs> or just do it in one sitting read it over and over again um, but we're going to be looking specifically at Ephesians 2 and 3 because there is a theological background for why I care about racial issues. This is not me listening to CNN. God bless Don Lemon. Unfeigned Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.